And today we um, end our series, uh, A Month in the Minor, Minors, um, by looking at the minor prophet Hosea. And Hosea is an interesting book, and I invite you to um, go home this week or throughout the, um, sometime this, um, this, this week to, or today and, and read throughout the, the whole book of Hosea. It's about, I think, 13 or 14 chapters long. Um, there's a lot going on. In Hosea, so and a couple of weeks ago we said if you read the very first chapter, a lot of times it tells you the the theme throughout the entire book of a book of the prophets. Well, if we only read the first chapter, then we're going to miss out on some of the things that come at the end of Hosea. And so today's reading is going to be a little bit longer. We're going to start in chapter uh, one and read through verse nine. We're going to jump over to chapter three, and then we're going to jump over uh, to chapter eleven. And if, if when you're reading it and when and you're listening, you hear the word Ephraim. That is a, the largest tribe of Israel. And so God is talking to Ephraim, this larger tribe. Maybe God is saying that because they are the ones leading um, Israel. Maybe, God, maybe the um, prophet writes Ephraim just to represent all of Israel. Whatever it is, this God's word is coming to us today and speaking to us today just like it was speaking to the Israelites so thousands of years ago. I invite you now to listen to the word that God is speaking to us on this morning. Chapter 1. The, Lord of the, um, the word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of um, Beri. In the days of kings Uzra, Jotham, Ohaz, and Hezekiah of Judea. And in the days of the king Jeroboam, the son of Johaz of Israel. When the Lord spoke through um, Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of prostitution and have a child of prostitution. For the land commits great prostitution forsaking the Lord. So he went and he took Gomar, a daughter of Adablam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel. For in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. Then the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Raham. For I will no longer have pity on the house of Israel or forgive them. But I will have pity on the house of Judah and I will save them by the, um, save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she um, had weaned Lo-Rahamah, she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Chapter 3. The Lord said to me again, Go, love a woman who has a lover and is an adulteress, just as the Lord loves the people of Israel though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer of barley and a measure of wine. And I said to her, you must remain as mine for days, for many days, and you shall not prostitute yourself. You shall not have intercourse with a man, nor I with you. For the Israelites shall remain many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephrod or without teraphim. Afterwards, the Israelites shall return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king, they shall come in awe. 
to the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. When Israel was a child, in chapter 11, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called him my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the balls and offering incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know what I had healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. They shall return to the land of Egypt and Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword rages in the cities. It consumes their oracle priests and devours because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning away from me. To the most high they call, but he does not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zebulun? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am a God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Friends, the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a story I heard recently about a father living in Chicago after his beloved oldest um, son graduated high school. He started distancing himself uh, from his family and purged headlong into the drug culture that encompasses many cities and towns and shows no prejudice to race or class. No one in his family heard for him for over a year. And then one night at 2 a.m., they got a call from the police. We have your son. He has a DUI. You have to come pick him up now. The father gets out of bed. He goes down to the precinct and explains who he is and who he's here to get. They look at him perplexed. They have no idea who or what he's talking about. Okay, it's Chicago. There are a lot of precincts in Chicago, so he goes to the next precinct, the same thing, and then to the next, and to the next, and to the next. All, each time, the same empty looks. So then he decides to go to the last place he remembers his son living, which is a crack house in a derelict part of town. He goes in, he looks, and he locates his son, sleeping on a mattress in a back room. At 5 a.m., his father looks down at his son, and on one hand, he's angry. Angry that once again, he led him on some wild goose chase. And on the other hand, his heart melts as he watches this boy, who slept not very long ago in his arms, sleep now, on a mattress in a hellhole. We speak of the word grace often. 
So much so, Mark Ramsey sarcastically says, grace almost becomes like a theological teddy bear. Soft, cuddly, unquestionable. But grace is not a theological teddy bear. Don't believe me? Well, behold the story of Hosea and his wife, Gomorrah, that we read this morning. Fred Bigner, I've been doing a lot of reading of Fred Bigner since he died, describes the scene in this way. Goma was always good company, a little loud, but great on a party and always good for a laugh. A little less than choosy about men and even less about booze. Then the prophet Hosea came along wearing a sandwich board that read, The end is at hand on one side and watch out on the other. The first time, he asked her to marry him. She thought he was kidding. The second time, Gomer knew that he was serious, but thought he was crazy. The third time, she said yes. He wasn't exactly a, a swinger, but he had a kind face. And he was generous, and he wasn't at all crazier than, well, anyone else. Besides, any fool can see that he loved her. Give or take a little, she even loved him back for a while. And they had three children whom Hosea named with strange names, like not pitted for God who would no longer pity Israel now that has gone to the dogs. But every time that role was called at school, Hosea would be scoring a prophetic bullseye in Absatina. But everybody could see the marriage wasn't going to last. While Hosea was off hitting the sawdust trail. Gomer took to hitting as many nice spots as she could squeeze into a night. He swore that he was through with her for keeps, although he wasn't. When he finally found her, she was lying passed out in a highly specialized establishment located above an adult bookstore, and he had to pay the management plenty to let her out of her contract. She had lost her front teeth and picked up some scars you had to see to believe. But Hosea, Hosea had her back. And that seemed to be all that mattered. He changed that sandwich board of his from their end is near to God is love on one side. And there is no end to it on the other. And when he stood on the street corner belting out, how can I give up, O Ephraim? How can I hand over, O Israel, for I am God and not a mortal, the Holy One in your midst. Nobody can say how many were converted that day. But one thing that's for sure, including Gomer's, there is seldom a dry eye in the house. Grace. Grace is decidedly not a theological teddy bear. <clears throat> Instead, grace has its penetrating and, and persistent ways that, that often send us into exile from a life that we knew only to finally bring us back home to a life with God. Three centuries ago, in a small village in England, a new priest came to town. The town folks were fascinated both uh, with his style of preaching 
<clears throat> and his checkered past as a slave trader. In those days, Kirgery frequently wrote original verses to, for the congregational singing. One of these conversations were titled, Faith's Review and Expectation. Here's a plan of little poem. It did stand out, and it was soon forgotten. But that song survived the priest, whose name was John Henry Newton. Amazing grace crossed the Atlantic. And when we sing it in a few minutes, notice especially the beginning of that second verse. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." That is grace. Grace is what teaches our heart to fear. In a culture whose mantra often is, no one is really at fault, grace punctures illusions that it's all comfort and no repentance. Or as Barbara Brown Taylor suggests, grace, no, grace is not fair. Rather, grace is alarming. Why is it? Why is it that grace is so alarming? Evoking fear before joy. Only grace moves us to trust, not in our deceptions, but in the power of God to change us. That movement is hard, but it leads us to joy. The fear of God's grace is that our security and control, our status quo, will be reduced to nothing. And that can feel very bad. It can feel like really bad news for all of us. But before it emerges as decidedly good news. And it leads us all to take risks that love and devotion expect. <clears throat> Sometimes that love and devotion go beyond our, even our own expectations. When I was in college one summer between my junior and senior year, a friend of mine, Sammy, died in a car wreck. He was one of those people that was uh, everyone enjoyed being around. He was full of love and fun and excitement. And at times, Sammy, this 20-year-old, he would push the boundaries. He was pretty colorful. I was doing an internship down in Florida, unable to make it home for the funeral, but later I learned that night of his wreck, a group of our friends went into his room and cleaned out some of his magazines and DVDs and various paraphernalia. Like I said, he was a colorful guy. When asked my friends why they went in and cleaned his room out, their response, they wanted to spare his mother any more pain than she was already dealing with. And being a little bit more straight-laced than some of them, I really would didn't know what to make of it at the time. But looking back, through the lens of Hosea and Gomorrah, that to me was the inbreaking of grace of God on earth. That we might clean out the paraphernalia of a dead friend's home before his grieving mother consider her son's affairs. It's small, 
surprising. It's a little profane, but it's real. And yes, Hosea and Gomorrah would say that, that is grace. Hosea is married to Gomer. Gomer is a prostitute reminding us our relationship with God. That is, if God is married to me, and if God is married to you, and if God is married to the church, therefore it's like a holy prophet being married to a prostitute. We think salvation is perfectly avoiding sin. The truth is, salvation... Well, salvation is simply sin turned on its head and used in our favor. This is how transformative divine love is. This is transformative grace of our lover. And our lover will stop at nothing to meet us in our dark place, a place that looks different, yes, than for each one of us. But it's a place that's unavoidable. A place we often find ourselves laying in. A place that our lover refuses to let us lay, though. So God comes over and he bends down and invites us home. When it finally dawns on us that if truly our sin costs us a lot, God coming to us cost God everything. <clears throat> you may recall, we left that father heartbroken at 5 a.m. Standing over his son who laid on a mattress in some hellhole. Oh, what do you do as a parent? There is no playbook for such a scenario. On that night, he'd been down. He bends down and he, he kisses his son. Then he gets up and he leaves. A month later, the son shows up at home. Then he shows up again three weeks later, and then again and again and again. And sooner than later, he's living back in the house with his parents. The father, the father finally asked him on that day, he, he said, what happened? The son said, Dad, don't you know? It was that night. You know the night that you got the call? It was one of my friends playing a prank on you. We all laughed thinking about how you would spend your night in precincts looking for me and, and getting back stairs, blank stairs in return. But the one thing we never imagined is the one thing I guess I've subconsciously was hoping for. That you'll come to the place where I was living. Dad, we saw you coming down that street. And we, we dove into our beds. I wasn't asleep that night. When you walked into my room and found me, I knew that you'd be furious with me. So I tightened up, ready for you to kick me as Hard as you can. But you didn't kick me. You kissed me. You kissed me. 
And that changed everything. Most of us in this room did not wake up this morning in some crack house. But I wonder, I wonder what is occupying your attention this morning. What is preventing you to see the full grace of God? For some of us, it is addiction. Quietly eating at us while we do our best just to keep our heads above water. And for others of us, it's that addiction we've been battling for so long, we know every day that we wake up, it's a struggle not to take one more drink. And for others of us, it's trying to climb this ladder that seems to get steeper and steeper and steeper and steeper for with every step that we take. And for others of us, it's credit card debt that we just can't seem to get out of. While others of us are, are fighting loneliness and anxiety and depression, we're just wondering why God would give me any grace at all. While others of us are so busy judging ourselves, or judging everyone else. Or maybe, maybe for us it's technology, or degrees, or money, or power. I wonder this morning, I wonder what we believe will save our lives. I wonder what occupies your minds from seeing the grace of God. I wonder, I wonder what occupies our young people's minds, those who lay their book bags down at this table. Whatever fear that is, whatever fear that occupies our minds this morning, know this, that God's love is meeting us there. Not to, to cradle us, for us not to cradle, for us not to cradle as if, if God is some teddy bear. No, God's love is more alarming than that. For God is the one reaching to us. God is the one that is bending down for us, kissing us. Relieving our fears with the only way that God knows how. And that's the sweet sound of grace.